this episode of Lawrence Talks. My good friend, Dr. Michael Otteson, joins me once again as my co-host. And joining us again to talk about the Supreme Court more broadly is Dr. Richard Levy of the University of Kansas Law School. Our discussion begins with Dr. Richard Levy discussing his his time as a law clerk for Richard Posner, a well-known judge for the Court of Appeals of the Seventh Circuit in Chicago. The rest of our discussion concerns originalism, the role of the Supreme Court, and Justice Amy Coney Barrett. As always, you can find us online at lawrencetalks.org, iTunes, and Spotify. The Lawrence Talks podcast is brought to you in part thanks to our partners at the Hall Center for the Humanities, IDRH, KU Philosophy, and the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. Thank you for listening and enjoy. I'll say at the outset that my opinions as expressed in this podcast are only my opinions, and I'm not speaking on behalf of the law school or the university on any of these matters. The University of Chicago is famous for law and economics, and uh, although I have essentially become conversant in law and economics as a result of it, I was I was not a fan. I, I sort of resisted it. So when it came time, and this was generally in uh, in between our second and third year of law school, we were applying for appellate clerkships. Um, I didn't want to clerk for him, and I didn't apply. Um, and uh, uh, apparently, there were other people in my class that shared this same view. So not a single person from the University of Chicago class that had me in it applied to be a clerk for him. Um, I guess sort of familiarity breeds contempt, whatever it was, people just weren't interested. And I actually, I got a call from a member of the faculty who I didn't know, who said, hey, you know, it'd be good if you applied to Posner to be a to be his clerk. Um, we'd sort of like to have one of our students continue to serve as his clerk, and it would not be a good thing if nobody from the University of Chicago uh, applied. And I said, well, you know, I'll think about it. But I was sort of angling for uh, hoping to get a clerkship um, Back here in, in, in this part of the country, there was a, a judge in, in the Kansas City area, and I, I was hope, you know, hoping to come back here and be close to family and things like that. So I, I kind of delayed, and, and, and I assumed that if I did apply, there was a good chance I would get it because they were asking me to. So, that, you know, I, I, I sort of felt like the fix was in. And, and um, But the, the judge that I wanted to clerk for was delaying making any decision. He had a bunch of more people he was interviewing with. And I started to get nervous that I wasn't going to get any clerkships. And I talked to one of the faculty members, the, the one that is sort of the card-carrying liberal member of the faculty at the University of Chicago, and uh, sort of asked him about clerking for for Posner, and and he he convinced me that it would be a good decision, 
he, he said that, you know, he had clerked for diehard liberal judges and justices, and they never disagreed about anything. And he didn't really learn a whole lot from, from those experiences. Um, and, and he also emphasized that uh, Posner um, worked in a very open door, open relationship type of interaction with his clerks. So it was a kind of unique opportunity to have very close access to one of the great legal minds really of, of, of that century um, and, and maybe into ours. And, and uh, you know, that, that sort of convinced me. So the next time I got a call saying, would you apply? I said, okay. And a half an hour later, I had a phone call from Posner um, asking me if I wanted the job. So I didn't even actually interview with him or go through a formal application process. That, that was it. I don't know if, if, uh, if it's your understanding or th- this is your understanding of his evolution, but uh, one of the texts that I have of his, uh, the failure of capitalism, one of the sort of, I think, blurbs on the, on the, about the book suggests that in that book, he sort of denounces law and economics. I, he is someone who, more than anyone I think I've ever met, um, did not feel like changing his mind was a confession of weakness. And uh, he he was somebody whose views changed and evolved based on, on, on sort of what he observed and saw. So he actually came out of law school. He was the child of New Deal liberal Democrats, and he clerked for Brennan. Um, he went to work for the FTC after he got out of uh, his clerkship. And he was, you know, he was an antitrust trust buster. And, and then uh, when he went into academia, he, he were, first was at Stanford. Um, and when he was at Stanford, he met George Stigler. And he was sort of enamored with Stigler's um, market-based economic theories. And then Stigler went to Chicago and Posner kind of followed him to Chicago. And um, that was also where other famous law and economics people were like Coase and so on. Um, and, and Posner came to be um, an elaborator of, of, of law and economics. Uh, and and uh, th- there's no question that he was among the leading proselytizers, I think, of, of, of law and economics. Um, but he was also kind of notoriously independent and contrarian on so many different issues. And I, I, I think he was um, disillusioned by... Uh, the the rightward lurch of the Republican Party. Um, he, he eventually wrote pretty extensively about um, uh, his feeling that they were crazy, essentially that that um, and and that he sort of at some point, if your fellow travelers are saying crazy things, maybe you need to reevaluate your um, your positions on on some issues. Um, and he was, uh, you know, quite uh, uh, opposed to a lot of the traditional Federalist Society judicial canons like originalism and um, 
uh, textualism. I was reviewing an article that he'd re- he he hates originalism. Oh, he thinks it's ludicrous. Yeah, yeah. He he wrote actually a, a a kind of interesting article where he compared it to um, the original instrument movement in performing music. Um, that was uh, essentially, you know, don't play Chopin on a 20th century piano. Go play it on a uh, 18th century piano, and and he, his his disdain was sort of like you know the originalism like the original instrument movement uh, neither one of them makes good music and that was sort of his 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 view of uh, of those things so yeah he was he was quite disdainful of uh of originalism and and textualism and he i think he wrote a pretty scathing review of Scalia and Garner's book on in the new Republic. Yeah. That's what I was reading on statutory interpretation. And it was, it's, it's interesting to me because his critique was really a lot like a critique that a guy named a professor named Carl Llewellyn wrote of statutory interpretation back in the thirties and forties in which Llewellyn sort of went through all of these canons of statutory construction that were prodded out as, as, you know, great rules for resolving uh, uncertainty. And, and, and Llewellyn demonstrated essentially that for every, canon there was an equal and opposite canon and that as a judge you could reach any interpretive result you wanted by you know picking the right canon and that it was a sort of uh, the the way that judges did interpretation was a scam in which they pretended like they were figuring out what the statute meant but what they were really doing is making their own policies and um uh, sort of the Scalia Garner book um, really advances uh, textualism as the only way to objectively resolve the the meaning of statutes and as the antidote to the manipulation that comes from trying to figure out what Congress intended the statute to mean um, and using legislative history as a vehicle to determine that. Um, and you know, I I personally would say I agree with with Judge Posner pretty strenuously that that approach doesn't produce objective answers any more than any other approach does. I, I tend to think this process, a lot of constitutional interpretation, a lot of statutory interpretation, a lot of common law adjudication, it's the judicial equivalent of, of a Rorschach test. There's this indistinct blob and people see in it what they bring from the very beginning, they just sort of what they recognize is stuff that they put into it, not stuff that's there uh, uh, originally. Um, and and I, I kind of feel like people that think that they're doing something else are um, fooling themselves as much as they're fooling anybody else. Have you found have you found uh, that contemporary originalists are a little bit more honest with that process or? Um, uh, well, there are so many different kinds of originalists and originalism. I hate to, to uh, paint with a broad brush. Um, and I guess I also, 
I mean, particularly, I don't I don't find that judicial originalists are honest about their originalism at all. Scholarly originalists, maybe because they're writing in a scholarly milieu, are are willing to express a little bit more recognition of the limits of of the theory. Um, because otherwise they're going to get skewered. But, you know, if you're on the Supreme Court, you say whatever you say, that, you know, it's the law. Everybody's happy except the people that lose. Um, yeah, I, I always find it interesting when when a, an originalist judge comes up for nomination. And because a lot of initially, at least people, when they go to uh, in response to that attack, the wrong at least uh, to begin with, they attack the sort of original intent originalism. Uh, uh, as opposed to the original meaning originalism. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. And then, so I think uh, yesterday, because I think, I think yes, uh, over at least say what you will about Amy Coney Barrett, but uh, at least during her discussions that with the, with the Senate, I think a lot of people may have been surprised when she talked about, well, there are a number of different types of originalists that you could, you could, depending on what you give uh, weight to, uh, what sort of principles you give most weight to, you could, uh, you could be a more liberal uh, originalist or you can be a more conservative originalist. Even sort of a strict textualist approach oftentimes produces divergent answers. So you two may have heard of the Title VII case, for example, um, in which- Bostic. Bostic, right. Yeah, which, right, because Gorsuch is a pure textualist. Right, so he gives yeah. this, if you read the text, this is what it means. There's no other way to read it. It's clear. It's unambiguous. And then the uh, dissenters are saying, this is what the text says. It's clear and unambiguous. There's no other possible meaning. So even 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 that sort of strict approach doesn't produce necessarily monolithic answers. And I think that one of the, if, if I was going to try to help clear up a misconception that people have generally about law, and in particular about the Constitution, it's that there are clear answers. Um, and and that, that somehow, you know, all you have to do is read the Constitution and you know what it means. You know that there's a, there's a clear, unambiguous, un- uh, unassailable text that has a meaning um, when that's not what it was. It wasn't written that way. It was written with open-ended terms. None of it is very clear. Everything that's happening now is completely unanticipated. Nobody knows what to do. And everybody is just scrambling for something to hold on to in order to try to give meaning to a document that was written you know, 240 years ago with a completely different state of the world and a completely different country in mind. If that is true, what's the point of having a a written constitution anyway? Why not just have a British system? Um, Because that way you're not pretending like this document matters because it seems to be your position is that the document's so ambiguous and it doesn't give clear answers. What, what's what's the point of having a written constitution? Okay, I should I should I'm glad you asked that because I should qualify and clarify um, what I'm what I'm really saying. There are 
clear provisions in the Constitution. It's just that those provisions never make it to the Supreme Court. I see. The Constitution says the president has to be 35. We don't have litigation over whether the president is 35 or not. He just has to be 35. Um, I don't know. Maybe the lawyers aren't creative enough. Well, there's there's that's actually I use that because it's the source of debate uh, among scholars. Some people say, well, does that mean chronological age or emotional age? Um, or yes. in, in, in which case, you know, we haven't had a qualified president for how many centuries? Um, but but we'll, we'll put that one. Uh, we'll put that one to one side. Um, but, but but, you know, the number of senators or the, um, uh, the number of representatives and the manner in which you determine that. Maybe it's a base 12 number system, not a base 10. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, so there I would be willing to go along with the original meaning oh, okay. uh, school of constitutional interpretation that would say they were using base 10 in 1789. So we'll continue to interpret the Constitution in accordance with base 10 uh, assumptions. So. There are lots of parts of the Constitution that are clear. Those tend to those tend not to be litigated. We don't we don't have to worry about those. Um, and even when we're talking about an open ended provision that has a lot of gray areas and whose application in a particular context is not always clear, there's still a kind of anchor there of text and meaning that places outer limits on what's conceivable and and feasible yeah you know i can i can buy something like that that seems sensible that like the first amendment says certain things and it, that clearly well there might be some ambiguity within a certain range there are clearly things that are outside of that it's, it's not about the right to own a giraffe or something right, like right. that i mean that would yeah, I, I always sort of say, you know, is the Second Amendment about my right to go around in a short sleeve right. shirt because I'm keeping bare arms. But that's yes. probably not the legitimate meaning of that um, right. that particular provision. Well, and I suppose someone like Posner would say something like, you know, at the time the Constitution was written, there was probably disagreement amongst the framers as to what exactly they thought the particular amendments meant. And there was controversy amongst the very people, you know, putting the document together. That's that. Yeah. Well, I take it, I take it even, even a step further where, you know, if you're asking about what the original meaning of the constitution was, we might ask the question, did the framers mean that the text yes. of the Constitution Absolutely. should be interpreted That's in right. 1789, or were they meaning to adopt terms that were open-ended and would evolve over time with society's values? I don't think that you have, I think if you were to sort of ask that question, you probably end up more on the latter side. I don't think the framers thought they were adopting a constitution that was going to have a fixed and settled meaning. I thought they, I think they w- thought they were adopting a, a framework for governance that would be uh, ever evolving and developing. Well, that, that certainly, yeah, I think they thought that as well, but they thought that the amendments would be a lot more common. They thought, I mean, I mean, I guess if I was putting on my originalist hat on, yeah. I might, I might be able to concede that and just say, 
yeah, but like they just didn't anticipate political parties or eventually how difficult it would be to amend the constitution. And that was the mechanism that they were expecting to, to yeah. change the, the document they, itself. Yeah, but they also clearly chose terms that were sufficiently capacious mm. to have evolutionary meanings of, of one kind or another. Words like commerce among the states, that kind of a phrase, you get a general sense what it means, but as time changes, what does commerce among the, the states mean? It changes. The framers clearly were not thinking about the internet. No. When they were when they were adopting commerce among the states, so we have to give some meaning to the phrase commerce among the states in relation to the internet, and we can't understand that concept or that application by asking what was the public meaning in 1789, because there was no public meaning as to this issue in 1789, and there's a whole host of things that that sort of go along that way. Now the other sort of uh, a concept would be something like equality or equal protection. Now that wasn't adopted yes. in 1789. That was adopted in the 1860s. 1868, um, yeah, in, the in the 14th in the 14th Amendment. Um, and uh, but but you know at that point in time there were assumptions about what it meant to treat men and women equally that were predicated on assumptions about the ways in which men and women were different Absolutely. that would justify treating men and women differently. Um, does that mean that the meaning of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause ought to be fixed by their understanding of what, you know, the proper roles of men and women, because that's what their original understanding of the meaning of equal protection was? Or do we take their larger goal of creating principles of legal equality between people or among people and apply it given what we now know? about men and, and women. I, I tend personally to be more in the latter camp. Well, that was Ginsburg's work in the 70s, right? When she was, I mean, she was trying to take the 14th Amendment and apply it to sex slash gender, recognizing that there are complications from differences uh, now, how we think about those terms than, than we did back then. But that seems to be, you know, some of her work before the Supreme Court, you know, was, was kind of that case. Yes. Yeah. So she was an advocate in the first case, really, to strike down a statute as uh, invalid because it treated men and women differently in a case called Reed versus Reed. She was she was one of the advocates of that in that case. Kind of kind of putting, uh, I guess, uh, part of our discussion back to generally the, the Supreme Court. You talked about uh, how sometimes it in some ways it's it's clear about what it what it demands and sometimes it's it, most of the time it's not is it what what how is it towards the the definition or the uh, framing of the supreme court itself because article 3 is the one that fleshes this out the, the right so so the supreme court is the only federal court that's explicitly mentioned in the constitution and created by the constitution it it vests the judicial power in the Supreme Court and such lower courts as uh, as uh, Congress establishes. So in 1789, one of the first things Congress did was to create 
of uh, the federal judiciary, you know, yes. the Judiciary Act of 1789. That provided for the Supreme Court and it provided for um, uh, the federal courts of appeals. The federal district courts were not created until much later. In the early days, there were only five Supreme Court justices that were um, created in the statute. The Constitution says nothing about the number of Supreme Court justices. So, um, there would be no constitutional impediment to expanding the size of the Supreme Court. And in fact, it's been done before when the court was expanded from five to nine justices. So it could be expanded uh, again. Um, it, the Constitution says the cases and controversies that the Supreme Court can hear those include, among other things, cases that arise under federal law. That's a really common source of federal jurisdiction. Um, and also cases involving diversity of citizenship. So when a citizen of one state sues a citizen of another state, um, the federal courts can become involved because of concerns of parochialism, right? You wouldn't want somebody who's stuck in another state's courts to be fearful that their those courts would be biased in favor of their own citizens. So they have a federal forum to prevent that kind of uh, potential for parochialism and bias. There's other cases in which the Supreme Court um, has potential jurisdiction. Um, but um, as far as I know, um, the exact cases that go before the court under the exact circumstances are pretty much defined by statute rather than by the Constitution itself. Um, so historically, statutes, there were, there were really two kinds of cases or two ways that cases would make their way to the Supreme Court. Um, some cases would be appealable as of right to the Supreme Court. So those cases would go automatically to the court and there was no real discretion, at least there's not supposed to be discretion on the court as to whether to take those cases. Um, over time, that type of jurisdiction has shrunk to the point where it's almost non-existent. There are a few cases for which there's appeal as of right. The other avenue that cases get before the Supreme Court under statute is by um, what's called a writ of certiorari. I, it's hard to pronounce. Everybody just says cert um, because uh, it's too hard to say the full Latin. Term. So that's a discretionary uh, review process, um, and most cases that come before the Supreme Court get to the Supreme Court through that process. So you have a lower court decision, either the decision of a state court, the highest court of a state, or a decision of um, the federal courts of appeals, and the party who loses is unhappy. They file what's called a petition for a writ of certiorari or a cert petition in which they ask the court to review the lower court decision. Now, the court can either grant the writ and, and give take review or deny the writ, in which case the case stops. Um, now, cert, cert petitions um, are not just about whether the 
lower court got it wrong. The Supreme Court doesn't have the resources, time, person, power, whatever, to review every case and correct every error. Um, so they really only take cases that they think it's important to set a, a, a nationally based principle to guide lower courts, state, state and federal courts. And the writings of the parties to the court asking the court to review are um, not just about whether the lower court was wrong, but also about why it's important for the Supreme Court to take this case in order to resolve this issue in a way that brings clarity to the law for the nation as a whole. Um, most common example of that would be where the courts of appeal, the federal courts of appeal have reached different outcomes on the same issue. So you don't want um, th those conflicting precedents to mean that you get one result in some states and another result in other states. You want the law to be unified. And, and so the court will take up the case in order to bring a, a clear answer. Um, a, a good example of that would be the Obergefell decision, recognizing the right of same-sex couples to marry. So the lower courts were deciding those cases, and the Supreme Court continually refused to grant review because they were all finding that there was a right to marry. And it wasn't until the Sixth Circuit decided there was no right to marry. That created a split of authority and in most people's view, forced the Supreme Court to take up the case and resolve the issue, which it, it seemed uh, anxious to avoid until then. What happens when the court decides to not review the decision to that law? Okay, so when the court decides not to review the decision, then the decision of the lower court whether that's the Court of Appeals or um, the state Supreme Court, remains valid. Um, now, if the court were to grant review and affirm, then it's a Supreme Court decision, and it has the weight of a Supreme Court decision, and it is binding throughout the system all the federal circuits, all the state courts. On the other hand, if the court declines to review a decision, then it doesn't become a Supreme Court decision. There's no significance to the refusal to review. It's not the same thing as affirming the decision. It doesn't become a Supreme Court decision. It's just a decision of a federal court of appeals that's no different from any other decision by a federal court of appeals. Because a lot going on right now is, is obviously the, the nomination process or the confirmation process. Could you provide any sort of, I guess, insight as to how that process has been treated? Uh, in the in the past and uh, compared to how it's how it's treated today, because you know a lot of a lot of folks want to say that it's a lot more political today. Well, I I wouldn't want to say that it's always been or consistently was apolitical or or non political. So among the most famous justices um, in history was one of the, was, was, was Chief Justice John Marshall, right? Everybody's heard of Chief Justice John Marshall. That people might not know 
that when he was appointed, he was at that point actually still serving as the Secretary of State in the outgoing administration of the first president, John Adams. And, and Adams lost in a really, really nasty I mean, sort of ult- ultimately nasty political fight with Jefferson. And and it resulted in a lot of last-ditch efforts on the part of the Federalist Party at that point in time to um, ensconce themselves in power in various ways and uh, and influence outcomes going forward, among which included you know, last ditch appointments of justice, judges and justices, look, you know, there we go. (laughs) And so I, 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 I have actually been over the years that I've taught con law. It's, it's amazing to me how many modern scandals have their, um, prototypes in the early history of uh, of the constitution i i, I love telling students about <laughs> yeah. the background to uh, mcculloch versus maryland which was a famous decision reinforcing the breadth of federal power and the supremacy of federal institutions and that case arose out of a banking scandal in which there was a land boom and the land prices all went up and suddenly everybody was making loans that were highly leveraged, especially to their friends, often, you know, based on fraud. And then uh, the war comes along and and the bottom, the war in Europe comes along and the bottom goes out of land prices. And and suddenly, you know, they're foreclosing on mortgages and the insiders are running away with their loan money without paying it back. And the banks are all going belly up because of their improvident loans. And some of their leaders are running off with the deposits in order to <laughs> pad their own income and go. So, does that sound at all familiar to you? Um, you know, <laughs> so it was especially good to talk about that, you know, during the early aughts when it was sort of like happening again. One of the one of the things that always comes up for me about uh, this whole process is, well, just how do you base your determination whether someone should uh, ascend to the Supreme Court or, or should go through their nomination should go through? I don't understand how you come up with uh, this uh, standard standard by what standard do you do you judge whether to go through or not yeah so the constitution provides for an appointment process so let's start there the nomination is made by the president and uh, the confirmation requires senate consent so in general terms whether somebody is qualified for or ought to ascend is not judged by a standard, it's judged by a person. The President of the United States is given the authority to decide who should be nominated to the Supreme Court. The Senate has the opportunity to check on that nomination. Now, I do think the role of the Senate has changed substantially from what it was at at one point in time. There, at least traditionally, was the view that the prerogative of appointment 
was vested by the Constitution in the president. And the president's choice was worthy of respect and ought to be confirmed unless the vetting process demonstrated some serious deficiency or ethical lapses or other kinds of issues with the nominee. So you you do see lots of uh, Supreme Court justices getting affirmed by large bipartisan majorities um, uh, on both sides. So um, people are talking a lot about Justice Ginsburg. She would be an example of somebody who was confirmed by a broad bipartisan majority. So was Justice Scalia. So there's a that that was the tradition. I, I think what ended up happening is that as the Supreme Court began to decide more and more controversial cases, that seemed more and more political, it came to be viewed more and more as a political prize. And uh, at that point, nominations became more politicized as well. So instead of asking the question, is this jurist of the highest caliber, um, maybe consistent generally with my philosophy, but of a, of a high caliber, um, presidents began to ask, will this jurist further my agenda or at least decide not to obstruct my agenda um, and nominate them on, on that basis? And um, as, soon as, as soon as the nomination by the president becomes political, so does the opposition by members of Congress, right? So if, if, if we're thinking about the court as a super legislator in which we count votes, who's Republican, who's Democrat, um, we can sort of count on the Republicans to side with the Republican talking points. We can count on the Democrats to side with the Democratic co- uh, talking points. Then the whole process is is uh, going to degenerate into an entirely political exercise um, rather than one in which you ask about sort of qualifications in terms of judicial temperament, uh, knowledge, experience, um, craft in, in their uh, working of the law and, and the like. So um, that that sort of politicization, a lot of people trace it back to the Bork uh, confirmation. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you about uh, Bork. Where opposition to Bork was really focused on concern about overturning Roe versus Wade um, and in which the Democrats in the Senate really went after him pretty aggressively um, in an effort to uh, show that his thinking was outside the political mainstream um, and didn't deserve to be on the Supreme Court, which I think is is um, kind of ironic because I, I would say now Bork would be a center judge um, on the Supreme Court rather than, you know, extreme right wing. But um, in, in any event, uh, a lot of people trace it to Bork, but I think it's important to remember 
you know, Roosevelt had a po- court packing plan. He did, yeah. And, you know, I, I, I couldn't identify all of them, but there were plenty of, you know, hot button political appointments that were, um, uh, had little or nothing to do with, with merit um, in terms of the appointment of, of the Supreme Court. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I, I think that, that the notion that somehow the politicization of the court is an entirely new phenomenon is, is inaccurate. I do think that our polarization, the hyperpolarization of the political environment that we now find ourselves in makes that a, a, a more damaging proposition for the Supreme Court um, because it's increasingly understood in those hyperpartisan terms. And, and in my view, that's sort of going to be the long-term undoing of the court. If, if the court is nothing other than an extension of politics um, and political power, then it loses the ability to actually solve, resolve any issue. Um, it, 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 because uh, it, whoever loses can just claim it's all political and it's not, you know, based on some sort of constitutional foundation or a neutral uh, a resolution of a dispute. Um, and I think that we're very much in danger of losing the court's ability to function in that way. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I find this question fascinating because, yeah, I mean, you are right that there were there's politicization of the Supreme Court, say, in Roosevelt's time. But it seemed like in like the middle of the 20th century, we had a string where, you know, there there aren't sharp divides along partisan lines, whether or not they're they're going to put people on the court. But I, I find this fascinating because I remember uh, learning about the case Baker v. Carr. Um, uh-huh. because, the uh, political question doctrine. Yeah, yeah. Right. Because this was Frankfurter's big thing, right? I mean, he, he wasn't in a, he, he was a big advocate of judicial restraint precisely for this reason. Cause he was worried that if the court continues like to intervene and like tell Congress or States that their legislation is unconstitutional, that it was going to have precisely this effect on the body politic because I mean, it is an interesting question because we have a legislature. Um, they're presumably that's the policymaking, bo- you know, body within the, the, the within the constitutional framework. And it's like, wh- what exactly is the legitimate purpose of the court when they are so much further removed from you know the people, from elect you know elections and all these other things? Why are they continuously intervening in this kind of? political way or in a way that intervenes upon politics. Well, and you know, that's a, 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 a source of ongoing and continuing constitutional debate. The framers didn't tell us in the no. constitution, uh, <laughs> no. uh, you know, how, how to resolve this. The role of the judiciary is to decide legal disputes. Um, they operate in a passive way. Parties bring their dispute to court and they, they seek a resolution of that dispute. 
In order to resolve a dispute, courts must determine what happens. They find facts. That's the role of the trial court and the jury. And then the court has to apply the law to the facts in order to determine a result. That's the function of the court. Now, when courts apply the law to the facts, that means a couple of things. One thing they have to do is figure out what the law means. And when a statute or constitutional provision is ambiguous, then they have to figure out what that ambiguous provision means. Um, and that's in order to decide the case, they have to do that. They can't say, um, well, it's hopelessly ambiguous, so we're not going to decide the case. They have to, they have to figure out what, what to do. Um, and then when we talk about invalidating statutes, um, the Constitution prescribes a hierarchy of law. The Constitution is at the apex of that hierarchy. Then come statutes and treaties that are adopted by the federal government. Then come provisions that are adopted by the state governments. But everything that the state governments do is by express language in the Constitution subordinate to everything that the federal government validly does. So if the court is confronted with multiple legal provisions that are in conflict with each other, the court has to decide which legal provision prevails in that in the, in the event of that conflict. And that's where the power to declare statutes unconstitutional comes from. There's a constitutional provision. It's at the apex of the legal hierarchy. If there's a contrary provision in a federal statute or state law, then the Constitution prevails and the courts have to apply that constitutional provision over the alternative version of the, of the statute. So that's the rationale for allowing courts to declare statutes invalid um, and what differentiates us from the British system in, in which there's no superior law to the enactments of parliament. Therefore, whatever parliament says goes. Although that's not even so true anymore because uh, I guess it will be after Brexit. It wasn't true for a while because EU law was superior to British law. Um, but 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 once Brexit goes through, that won't be the case. Well, yeah, I guess I guess that presents the problem. I think is that what what are like the the problem? I think within the context of of the Supreme Court and questions about legitimacy are is. Who are these people, these nine unelected jurists, to essentially intervene consistently into political questions when just ignore exactly the like because the Constitution is ambiguous? If you care about, say, democratic input as, as a source of legitimacy in government, why should the court? constantly intervene in legislate like to overturn legislative uh you know statutes yeah well so so that's referred to in the literature as the counter majoritarian difficulty yes. 
That is, the court is acting against the majoritarian impulses of the Constitution. Or, or even, yeah, even just generally like, uh, you know, the prerogative, say, right. of the legislature, uh, even, uh, I mean, the legislature. also has right. counter-majority. Right. Yeah. The Constitution, the, the Constitution yes. vests that exactly. in the legislature. Yes. So, um, uh, okay. So, um, some people... Uh, and there was a sort of long-standing position that would say courts should not intervene unless there was a clear constitutional violation. That's Frankfurter's position, right? That's the old. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. various yeah. people's provision. It was sort of uh, there was a famous guy named Thayer who who frequently articulated that in the 1890s. And, and uh, you know, let's let's remember that the court really became active in doing this in the period from about 1890 to 1937, and it was doing it to strike down New Deal legislation and, 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 and yes. progressive laws. Yes. Um, exactly. So, yeah, the Lochner right, era right. court, right, where they, they really care about, like, right, contracts, right. and, their, and that's, that's the The Constitution yeah. protects property rights and freedom of contract and anything that was insufficiently justified that interfered with property rights and liberty of contract violated the Constitution. They also uh, read the scope of federal power, particularly power to regulate commerce, very narrowly and struck down federal laws that went too too far and yep. regulating production and agriculture and mining and things like that. So they, they, they were doing a lot of things. Um, so um, I don't have a good answer for you on this. Um, there, there's a, a, a law professor who I, who wrote something I, that I read once a guy named Mark Tushnet, who said something that I agreed with 100%, which is it's not possible both to authorize the Supreme Court to invalidate legislation and to limit its authority to do so. So you either um, you either say they don't have that yes. power or you give them the power yes. and then you're stuck with them using it how they want to. Um, That's right. And, That's and right. so I, I, I do feel like th that we have to choose one or the other. And I think the framers quite self-evidently chose the constitution as fundamental law and courts as having the authority to enforce fundamental law. I don't know that we would be better off with the British system um, in, in the United States. Do I think we would be better off if the court was more circumspect? Yes. Um, but who am I? I mean, if you put me on the court, which of course you should be doing, <laughs> because I would be, I, I, I would be both highly qualified and careful and, and, and full of craft and all that sort of thing. And I'm sure President Trump is going to be listening and I'll be the next nominee, although I don't have the approval of the Federalist Society, who knows? You know, once you're there, once you're in the position, if you see something that you firmly believe is wrong, it, that the, the temptation to see in the Constitution a limitation that prevents that thing, which you believe is clearly wrong, is overwhelming. And, and you, it's, 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 hard, it's, it's hard for people to resist it. Um, and it's, it, 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 it's, yep. 
That's right. The Supreme Court is the most yes. unchecked power. Yes that exists in our constitutional system, at least when the system is operating properly. I mean, right now, I think maybe the president has more unchecked power than the Supreme Court does um, because because the Congress has decided not to check it um, uh, or, or incapable of checking it. But I think in the constitutional scheme of things, people don't talk about, well, you know, Congress should exercise self-restraint or the president should exercise self-restraint. They well, do talk yeah. about the court exercising self-restraint. And that's premised no, that's in right. some measure on the idea that the court operates as a constraint on Congress. If Congress doesn't restrain itself, the court will. If the president doesn't constrain himself or herself, then, then the court will. But who constrains the court? Who has the ability to, to, to rein the court in? Well, nobody does. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that at least uh, at the time of the framing and for most of our history, that made sense because judges were deciding cases differently than, um, than, than were presidents or Congress. So they, there's a method to, to the judicial process that involves, you know, understanding, reading text, um, interpreting and, and, and reconciling case law to provide precedent, listening to arguments on, on both sides and developing uh, ideally, uh, something approaching a consensus within a multi-member body as to what the law means. And um, if you're going to have any institution of government that is the only self-checking institution of government, that kind of institution makes more sense than an elected institution or a, a single individual um, and and so that was at least the theory of the framers, I think, when they were balancing the different powers of government, they, they sort of said, well, we'll put the um, we'll, we'll put the power to constrain the others in the branch of government that, as the court said, uh, excuse me, as, as famously said, was the least dangerous of the branches of government because it's passive, because it involves a, a, a judicial process and craft have to that wait makes for it cases, more difficult yeah. for the court to uh, uh, abuse power um, than, than the other branches of government. Well, yeah, the, the, though it is interesting that just based on the text of the Constitution, of course, judicial review isn't per se written into the text. That's something that Marshall came up with later. <laughs> well, yes, but I think that the reasoning, although it was sort of famously obscure case and, yeah, yeah. and, and all of that sort of thing, the essential premise that the Constitution is the superior law and that courts have a duty to apply the Constitution as superior law when it arises in a case. That seems to me pretty unassailable. And although Marshall didn't actually cite it, there were precedents supporting that, that he didn't come up with, that pre-existed um, his, his uh, decision in Marbury versus Madison. Um, there was a prior Supreme Court decision, um, or actually it was 
series of circuit decisions in which individual justices rode circuit and uh, declared um, uh, provisions of uh, a statute to be unconstitutional because they allowed um, uh, decisions made by courts to be reviewed by the executive branch and and set aside. They were pension decisions, but the court sort of said, hey, you know, we decide cases, not the executive branch, and you can't review. So there were there was actually prior case law declaring statutes unconstitutional. There were state courts that applied that principle under state constitutions that were um, uh, doing so at the same time. So um, although people like to point to Marbury versus Madison as the key case it, it, it the, the principle was there before it no no, no. yeah i, I definitely um, not i can see why Adams there's a law. i mean perhaps i mean what else is the supreme court doing if it's not reviewing what's constitutional what's not um why why i mean i'm, I'm sympathetic to uh that line of reasoning but i i am now curious so for you then because you 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 don't like the originalist position, the text is ambiguous. So so, what is the role of the court then in in engaging in this sort of you know the, if it is entrusted with judicial review, is it what's its job just to just to like outline the the broad boundaries well, outside of which a statute would be unconstitutional and otherwise leave it up to leave it up to the uh, the executive and the legislature or how how do you how do you envision this working? I, I think their job is to decide a case. The case comes before them. Their job is to decide it. And the only way they can decide it is take the facts, take the law, apply the law to the facts, and reach a conclusion. And, and that's what they need to do. Now, um, there's a line from a Rush song that I've always liked. If you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. So I, I think it's important to recognize that if the court says, oh, no, we're not going to talk about we're not going to decide this, they are deciding it. They're deciding that the political branches are unfettered. That's a choice. If the political branches yeah. are acting in ways that That's, violate yeah. the yeah. Constitution and the Supreme Court says, well, we're not going to decide then it seems to me they're abdicating their responsibility under the Constitution to decide in accordance with the provisions of the Constitution. And let's take a look at Baker versus Carr, for example. So in, in, in that case, the court opened the way to challenges of districting under the one-person, one-vote principle. And uh, they basically ruled that well, gee, lo and behold, the equal protections clause yeah. gives us standards yeah. that we can use to decide whether or not yeah. the one person, one vote principle is constitutional. This is not something that the Constitution vested in Congress or the president to decide. Um, and just because it has political yes. overtones, doesn't mean that courts can't decide it. So the, the, the Baker versus Carr did not abandon the political question doctrine. It just said the political question doctrine doesn't mean that uh, hot button political issues are beyond the scope of the court. What it means is 
the, the court lacks jurisdiction when a question is one that the Constitution vests in another branch or one for which the Constitution does not provide an answer. Um, and under those sure. circumstances, the court uh, properly leaves it to the uh, uh, political branches. But the court basically said the one person, one vote principle or the problem of vote dilution and malapportionment is not something that the Constitution is silent on because the principle of equal protection limits the extent to which legislators can allow some people's votes to count more than others. And I guess my own personal view, and I'll admit this is my personal view, is that that's got to be right. That um, if it would be completely improper for, let's say, the state to pass a law that says um, everybody who's white gets 10 votes, but everybody who's black gets one. That would be a clear violation of the Constitution. But that's political. That deals with voting. It deals with elections. And if you say elections are political questions and courts should stay out, then they have to stay out of that one too. Um, and if you're going to if you're going to say that just because it's an election doesn't mean the courts have to stay out, then courts ought to be applying the Constitution broadly speaking to the operation of elections. I don't I don't see any middle ground on that. No, no, yeah, no. I, I, w what I was asking about, I guess, is um, earlier said in many cases in the Constitution, it becomes a kind of Rorschach test where essentially you can see whatever uh -huh. you want in the Constitution. And so I guess I'm asking then in that context, say something like, you know, I don't know, the Eighth Amendment with cruel and unusual punishment, right? If the if the court's job is to determine what the Constitution says and to apply that if relevant, um, but the text itself is deeply ambiguous, what then do you think the court should do? How should they make a decision in a case of like the death penalty or something like that? Well, then I, I think then each justice has to do his or her best job of assigning a meaning in light of all the available information. So um, I, I am what I, I tell my students, I'm a radical eclectic on uh, judicial interpretation. I, I believe you should use every tool in your toolkit to come to the best possible answer that you can. So although I'm not originalist, that doesn't mean I would ignore history. Mm. Uh, I'm not a textualist. It doesn't mean I would ignore text. The text yeah. um, instead, what, uh, what I would try to do is come up with the best possible answer I could. Um, and and I, uh, I, I do think the problem we have is less uh, uh, the problem that you're focused on and more the uh, hubris of the people who get appointed to the court. I don't think they approach it with sufficient modesty um, in, uh, ah. in the way that they uh, address these issues. Uh, um, I am actually, I'm reminded, it's, it's, it's a, a great uh, of a story that a friend of mine, uh, Randy Harrell, who was a longtime uh, executive director of the Kansas Judicial Council, he once told me this story. It's a baseball story, but I've always thought it really works for judges, too. So the baseball story is three umpires are talking. And the first umpire says, I call them like I see them. And the second umpire says, hell, I call them like they are. 
Um, and then the third umpire says, they're not anything until I call them. Um, and I think that pretty much describes judges. You know, judges, some judges are sort of doing the best they can to provide an answer as best they can under the circumstances. And I'm willing to cut those judges and justices a lot of slack. I may disagree with them, but if they're giving me intellectually honest explanations that come that that that, that are their best explanations for why they're reaching the result that they reach, that seems to me perfectly within the norms of good judging. Even and and, and I am not confident enough in my own views to say well, because they didn't reach the result I would, they're wrong and I'm right. So I'm, I'm, I'm more than happy with the judge um, that's doing the best they can to get it right, recognizing that they don't have all the answers and they're not perfect. I'm less happy. So it's almost a disposition yeah, that you want it, judges to have, it, a kind of modesty where, where it's perhaps the first approach where they're like, I, I'm trying to call it the best I can yeah. and I'm not making their grand pronouncements about what is or grand pronouncements that I get to decide whatever I want. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I sort of feel, um, that what our appointment process is increasingly leading us to is, uh, justices who have an agenda and whose, uh, appointment is based upon a preset. This is the way it is. And my job is to make the law fit that model going forward. Right. Um, and I, I, I find the proclamations of candidates for appointment to the effect that they're just going to decide individual cases when they've been thoroughly vetted by the Federalist Society and, and others or by the Democratic Party on the other side, I, I find that to be disingenuous. And I, I don't I, I don't really see in the appointments any prioritizing by presidents or senators or parties of uh, what I would call a sort of proper and appropriate judicial temperament um, that recognizes and is modest about what they know, what they can actually decide and do with confidence. Um, and uh, it's, it's that uh, increasing hubris, I think, that's led us to the impasse that we currently have. And I'd, I'd love to see us go back to a model in which, you know, modest, craft-oriented judges are extolled um, as the model that we want to proceed under, rather than, you know, judges with grand um, uh, theories of the Constitution. Um, which, which actually reminds me of a of, of a question that um, uh, one of my mentors on the KU faculty, Francis Heller, once asked me. Um, he, he asked me if it was a greater criticism of a Supreme Court justice to say that the justice had no theory of the Constitution, or that the justice had a theory of the Constitution. <laughs> um, and I, I tend to think it's more the latter, right? That having a theory of the Constitution ends up getting you deciding cases in accordance with the theory. 
um, rather than trying to just decide a case. By, by uh, having a theory of the Constitution, is that, do you mean by having a judicial uh, or a sort of judicial theory or interpretive theory? Yeah, I, I mean, I mean a, 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 a sort of grand approach that tells you how the Constitution ought to be interpreted and applied based upon some overarching principle or understanding. It might be original intent. Um, another sort of theory that was highly influential um, uh, advanced by um, uh, John Hart Ely, um, who was former dean of Harvard, was, it was called the political process theory of the Constitution that sort of justified judicial intervention when judges identified a process failure. So when the democratic processes fail, then there's a, a justification for judicial intervention um, and the counter majoritarian difficulty falls away because the majoritarian processes didn't work properly. Yes. Um, I, I sort of feel like uh, under that theory, um, None of our political processes work, so judges should be free to decide anything these days. Um, and and so it's not a very helpful yeah. approach anymore. No, well, in fact, it would feed into perhaps what has happened where Congress continues to kind of abdicate responsibility to legislate. And so more and more power is vested in the executive and the courts precisely because the Congress is so sclerotic. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, um, yeah, power abhorbs a, a, a vacuum. So people are going to, yes. people are going to take what, whatever power they can get. Um, uh, no question about that. So, uh, it, you know, it's hard these days to be optimistic about how the country comes out of its current morass. Um, our our uh, population seems to be pretty hopelessly divided uh, in ways that seem like there's no way to actually even talk about issues and listen to each other anymore. Um, our parties seem to be mired in a kind of zero sum game where any victory for the other side is by definition a defeat for them. So the, the you know, the, the best political strategy is to prevent them from doing anything. So we, you know, both sides are engaged in, in, in obstruction. Although I, I guess I would have to say my historical observation would be the Republicans did it first and hardest. Um, and, Yes. And, and they can't now complain about it um, to, a, to a certain extent. You know, I, yes. I, I don't know what we do about that. I don't know how we change that. Um, it, it's one of those kind of vicious circles where it's mutually reinforcing and accelerating and exaggerating. And um, anybody who sort of tries to take a different tack is unilaterally disarming and and hoping they don't get shot um and that you know nobody nobody's really willing to take that leap of faith so i don't know what we do uh, on that uh, so uh i i i guess and 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 you know i don't mean to editorialize i would have thought 200,000 plus dead people might have woken people up. Yes. Um, it's, it's, but apparently not. That's yeah, right. I was, I was just going to say that it's it's problematic because you have these conversations where people I think at least in our circles that are advocating for more discussions, more uh 
people coming together that disagree and having these fruitful conversations and that, and that's itself, that, that recommendation itself is being sort of, uh, uh, demonized in, 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 in a lot of ways saying that the, the time the, right now, that now, now is not the time for, for thoughtful discussion. Right. Now is the, now is the time for revolution. Now is the time for direct action, et, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you know, um, in, in other contexts, I have sometimes discussed with people, how do you fight terrorism? Um, and my response to that has always been with hope. I've always felt like terrorism was the product of hopelessness. If you've got nothing else to do, then scorched earth, you know, blow everything up. Maybe you'll get somebody's uh, attention. Um, and I, I, I feel to a certain extent that both extremes in our political spectrums have been reduced to a sense of hopelessness. Um, and as a consequence, they're engaged, maybe not yet too much in uh, physical violence in the form of terrorism, but they're certainly engaged in intellectual terrorism and in policy-based terrorism and political terrorism in, in, in which you know they're they're trying they're they're trying to get attention and response by being uh, you know aggressive and uh, destructive in in the way that they do things. yes and um, it's it's hard to tell them that that won't work given the, the sense that they have that nothing else does so i, I mean it 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 does seem to me that um, the the best response to that is by trying to make government work. And if, if people on both the left and the right started to see government working to deal with the problems that they're uh, experiencing, then, then I think that, that more discussion might be had. And I, I, I think it's kind of ironic because I, I tend to believe that people on the extremes of the left and the right are actually experiencing very, very similar problems. Um, and uh, what's, what's basically happened is that the political parties have used wedge issues to try to capture those extreme voices on either side and 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 essentially hold them uh, as their base um, when if if the those two extreme sides could actually uh, communicate with each other they'd learn that they have very similar interests um, in sort of breaking the stranglehold of money on on the the formulation of policy and developing programs and policies to deal with um, educational and economic deficits that are affecting large segments of the population, but but they don't. I mean, so as I mentioned, right, the uh, the current conversation is on everybody else's mind. Uh, so I thought I. I, I thinking I probably shouldn't let you leave without sort of ask, uh, asking you, uh, what are your sort of uh, considered expectations about uh, uh, Judge Amy uh, Coney Barrett as a, as a justice on the Supreme Court? So you're, you're asking me that with the understanding that she's going to be confirmed, um, right? Yeah. So uh, yeah. the, the assumption is that, that she's going to be confirmed. So before I talk about her as a justice, I, I would like to emphasize that I believe that the last three to four years 
uh, have uh, going back to the Gorsuch um, uh, nomination or the um, uh, Garland uh, stiffing, uh, you know, refusal to to confirm Garland. I think that this has been among the worst. Uh, periods of time for the, the legitimacy of courts of the court um, that I can ever point to, and um, it's it's I think that that confirming Barrett, which seems likely to happen, will do a lot of damage to the legitimacy of the court, um, and I would expect going forward that decisions that she contributes to that might overturn Roe versus Wade or strike down Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, or any one of a number of other decisions that uh, might be conservatively directed, strong gun rights, whatever we want to say, that um, the groundwork has been laid for large proportion of the population to regard them as fundamentally illegitimate. And the product of political machinations rather than a legitimate decision of the Supreme Court. That's really sad. I mean, that, more than just sad. That's uh, that's that's going to cause long-term damage to the uh, country um, because of the way the court is viewed. And I think we're we're sort of one significant Barrett decision away from court packing as the the democratic response. So what do I think that she'll do? Um, I don't know. I don't know her. I'm not seeing her. Um, I think, first of all, she's very, very smart. Uh, I think you just have to watch the hearings to know that she's smarter than everybody who's asking her questions. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's not it's not even close on on that on, on that score. Yeah. Um, so yeah. um, I, I think that that's, you know, that that's a, a factor. I, I think that she might surprise people in some of the same ways that Chief Justice Roberts has surprised people. She might be maybe I think she can't be unaware of the potential damage that her nomination would do to the legitimacy or her confirmation would do to the legitimacy of the court. I think Chief Justice Roberts was concerned about the court being viewed as overtly political and some of his decisions where he crossed over have been partly with an eye towards maintaining the court's legitimacy in the eye of the general public. So I, I think it's possible, this is just speculation, but I don't think it's impossible that, that, that a Justice Barrett would be aware of those concerns and attentive to them. And it might be very hesitant, for example, given all the hoopla surrounding it, to cast the deciding vote to invalidate the Affordable Care Act. Um, and that, you know, whatever she does, she might have the longer term health of the court as an institution, at least as one consideration in, in her thinking. Um, we also don't know about I don't think we know too much about her views on stare decisis. Um, so at least at one point in time, respect for precedent was seen as a conservative, judicially restrained position to take. Um, 
And so she might have more respect for some cases that she would decide differently if she were deciding them the first instance um, uh, out of respect for, for stare decisis. So that would be potentially another factor um, uh, that, that's in, in, uh, in the back of her mind or, or front of her mind and, and, and figures in her decisions. On the other hand, I think it's it's pretty clear that she's been thoroughly vetted as a, a, a strong conservative. That that she's most likely to side more along, more or less along the same lines as Scalia, Thomas, Gorsuch, Alito, um, Kavanaugh, um, and, and would be in more or less the same mold, even if they didn't agree on everything. Because she mentioned stare decisis in the confirmation, uh, at least when talking about the Affordable Care Act. And she also mentioned looking at the legislative intent regarding uh, Affordable Care Act. So I thought that was interesting given because it to all that spoke to me about uh, how she might be a little bit more uh, pragmatic sometimes than than uh, than an originalist in in some cases. But in but yeah, so I th- I do I do think the history of the conservative movement in the Supreme Court, um, starting in the 1980s, has been a lot of noise about dramatic change, a lot of fear on the part of uh, opponents of dramatic change, that we're going to roll back to the pre-New Deal area, or we're going to overturn Roe versus Wade, or we're going to dismantle the modern administrative state on separation of powers grounds, or severely curtail federal power. There's been a lot of noise in that direction. But but when the court has been right up against it and confronted with the up or down vote to you know institute major changes in the law it's generally backed away in the last 30 or 40 years and you know the question is whether barrett's confirmation is the enough to push them over the edge to do those kinds of dramatic um, fundamental changes in constitutional and other doctrines, or whether it's more of a just another incremental step that maybe takes us somewhat down that road w- without sort of dramatically and fundamentally altering the, the landscape. And I, I think we won't know until we, we sort of see what happens. With that, thank you, Richard, for joining us today and for your insights into the Institute of the Supreme Court. This will definitely be and should be an ongoing discussion, that not just about what we expect of our judicial system, but of what we expect of our political system and our politicians. I also want to thank Dr. Michael Otteson for being my co-host today. And thank you all for listening. As always, we hope you like, subscribe, and share this episode.